This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, August 4th, 2022 on your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. First, Thursday is here for downtown Fayetteville. This month's theme, Dog Days, and it includes a dog pageant. Your dog needs to be polite, at least six months old, and ready for you to take care of any necessary cleanup. All the details for this month's activities on the Fayetteville Square at experiencefayetteville.com. And tomorrow in downtown Bentonville, first Friday with the theme of Back to School. Ahead on our hour today, My Fair Lady opens up the Broadway season at Walton Arts Center next week, and Leo Ribe with Sound Perimeter, part of our second half hour. First, war refugees from Ukraine are finding temporary safe haven in Arkansas, according to the refugee resettlement agency Canopy NWA. This is under a special federal program, Uniting for Ukraine. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. Uniting for Ukraine provides a special pathway to Ukrainian citizens to legally enter the U.S., where, sponsored by private individuals or groups, they can remain for a two-year period, designated as Ukraine Humanitarian Parolees, Refugees are privy to certain benefits and privileges. Kit Tainter is vice president of policy and practice with Welcome.us that works in collaboration with Uniting for Ukraine. We have um, on our website a whole bunch of different resources, including explainers, interactive guides, step-by-step guides on how to help and local organizations, including in Arkansas, that may need volunteers or financial assistance to help newcomers. By newcomers, she's referring to Ukraine refugees fleeing an unprovoked war launched by Russian President Vladimir Putin in late February. Russian military forces continue to bomb cities and towns, destroying hospitals, schools, businesses, farms, and churches in a quest to occupy Ukraine and oust its Western-leaning government. The Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has since early July recorded over 11,000 Ukrainian civilian casualties. Of those, 5,000 were killed and over 6,200 injured. Five months into that siege, millions of Ukrainians have fled their homeland to neighboring countries, most notably Poland. Only a fraction are being accommodated in the U.S. In April, President Biden set a goal that the United States would welcome 100,000 Ukrainians through Uniting for Ukraine. But we're pleased to see that the administration has not has not set a ceiling for the maximum number of Ukrainians who can arrive for this program. There were also almost 50,000 Ukrainians who arrived in the U.S. in March and April before the Uniting for Ukraine program was set up. And it's important to recognize that there have been over 8 million individuals who have fled Ukraine since the war began. This is the largest displacement in Europe since the end of World War II, and many nations, including the U.S., Poland, Turkey, Mexico, and Germany, have responded. Welcome.us provides resources and training to sponsors willing to help Ukraine refugees. So underneath Uniting for Ukraine, there have been over 86,000 applications filed. And what this means is there's been 86,000 Americans who have raised their hand and determined that they can offer safety and sanctuary to a Ukrainian. The U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security has designated Ukraine for temporary protected status that allows Ukrainians to work while residing in the U.S. But first, they must have a place to live, food to eat, clothes to wear, and medical care, which sponsors help provide. 
Humanitarian parole is an application process where a sponsor, a person in the United States, um, legally present in the United States, can put in an application for a named beneficiary, an individual from Ukraine. Part of that application process is ensuring that uh, the American sponsor has financial resources that can help the Ukrainian find safe footing here in the United States. So materials that are required as part of the Department of Homeland Security's application include things like proof of employment, maybe a listing of income and assets, again, that can satisfy the Department of Homeland Security's requirement that uh, a beneficiary in this program be financially supported um, by the sponsor until they can find um, job and earn income. The Department of Homeland Security conducts background security checks for both Ukraine humanitarian parolees as well as sponsors. Many of these Ukrainians fled with not much more than a suitcase, many of them leaving um, jobs, many of them leaving their homes. And so part of a sponsor's responsibility um, when they welcome a newcomer is to help them find safe footing when they arrive. This could be um, helping them with a few um, months of rent. This could be with helping them um, find transportation as, as they learn more about their local communities. At the same time, Ukrainian humanitarian parolees are eligible for the same exact benefits as those who arrive under refugee status. Welcome.us operates a digital hub, including an FAQ and a six-part webinar series on sponsorships, also available on the nonprofit's YouTube channel. Recently, Welcome.us launched Welcome Connect, a digital site that allows Ukrainian humanitarian parolees to search for certain sponsors and vice versa. So Welcome.us partnered with Goldman Sachs, ServiceNow, and Infosys to stand up a first-of-a-kind platform that provides a safe and streamlined process for matching Americans with Ukrainian beneficiaries. On Welcome Connect, compatible Ukrainian refugees and prospective sponsors can message one another to make informed decisions. Employment Services Manager Lena Ninkum leads the Ukraine response team at Canopy NWA, founded in 2016 and headquartered in Fayetteville. Canopy is an affiliate of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services. Many of the sponsors that we've come to find specifically in Arkansas have personal relationships or ties to the Ukrainian individuals and families that are coming through. According to the Migration Policy Institute, around 350,000 Ukraine immigrants live in the United States. Ninkum says sponsors who sign up with Uniting for Ukraine shoulder most of the financial costs. From the sponsorship side, they'll submit an application to show that they have the capacity to be able to sponsor a Ukrainian individual or family. And um, Ukrainians on the other side, you know, provide um, passports proof of documentation that they are themselves Ukrainian citizens that do need assistance and aid. Any Arkansas individual, family, or groups willing to help resettle Ukrainian war refugees, Nikum says, should apply to Uniting for Ukraine through Welcome.us. Canopy's Ukraine refugee resettlement team is on hand to provide guidance to prospective and active sponsors who are responsible for housing, financial support, and other services resettlement agencies traditionally provide. Ninkum says Canopy's team does help with employment assistance to sponsors through two different programs, matching grant and refugee support services. 
It's really up to the sponsor if um, they seek uh, community guidance uh, through a refugee resettlement agency. So what I've come to find is that those that do reach out to Canopy um, and because they are providing the core services that an agency would traditionally provide, um, they're really coming to us for guidance on how to get access to um, public benefits for their families or how to get access to um, obtaining a social security card or access to Medicaid and things like that. UN migration data show 6.1 million Ukrainians have, as of early July, registered for temporary protected status. As of early May, over 15,000 have reportedly been resettled under the Uniting for Ukraine program. We queried the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Southern Region for Arkansas data with no response. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The Arkansas Board of Election Commissioners has voted not to certify a recreational marijuana proposal for the November ballot. During a meeting yesterday, commissioners cited problems with the name and ballot title, not including details on the amount of THC in the product. That's the active ingredient in marijuana. Attorneys for the group Responsible Growth Arkansas, which is backing the proposed constitutional amendment, say they'll challenge the decision to the Arkansas Supreme Court. Pregnancy resource centers across Arkansas are being invited to apply for grant funding made available by the state legislature during the recent fiscal session. Scott Harden is spokesperson for the Arkansas Department of Finance and Administration, which is administering the grant program. So as a result of Act 187 of 2022, um, there's been a million dollars that has been dedicated to pregnancy resource centers in the state. And the way that's going to work is we now have an application on our website, dfa.arkansas.gov. Um, and we estimate that there are probably about 40 or 50 organizations in the state that certainly would qualify for this funding should, should they choose to pursue it. Um, but any organization is, is welcome to apply, and uh, you go to the website. It's about a 20-page application, and it's now posted, and the deadline to apply is August 26th. The mission of Pregnancy Resource Centers, also referred to as Crisis Pregnancy Centers, is to encourage women facing unintended pregnancy to give birth and discourage abortion. Harden says adoption agencies, maternity homes, and social services organizations that support women with unintended pregnancies also qualify to apply for operating grant funds. It could be a broad range of services. It could be um, to to hire staff uh, or, or payroll there. It could be simply to administer existing programs. Um, And what those organizations are going to have to provide is basically a budget and a breakdown of how they plan to spend those funds. And actually, the funding must be spent. It's between the the actual formal spend must be between October 1st, 2022 and June 30th, 2023. So however it's going to be spent, it has to be spent within that time frame. And we'll be issuing it, uh, let's, hypothetically, if someone uh, qualifies for $30,000 in funding, if an organization does, uh, we'll be doing that via three different releases, so three different $10,000 releases. And then also the organization is going to be providing some information back to us in the form of reports, just letting us know how it's going. Harden says if requests for grants exceed $1 million, funding will be prorated and divided equally among qualifying applicants. With abortion now outlawed in Arkansas, pregnancy resource centers are increasingly responding to low-income and impoverished women with unintended pregnancies, unable to travel to states where abortion remains legal. 
All this week, KUAF is saying thank you to our members. Your support powers the headlines, stories, and music that you and your neighbors rely on every day. We also know that the news can be overwhelming. So here's a little break just to say thanks. Arkansas's economy looks strong, according to the state's revenue report for last month, which was released this week. Michael Hiblin with our partner station KUAR in Little Rock spoke with John Shelnut, an economist with the Department of Finance and Administration. First month into the new fiscal year looks pretty promising. What's your take? Well, July net available came in $26.6 million above forecast. And gross revenue, which is collections, came in $18.2 million above forecast. I think the overall story is that revenue growth was better than expected. Individual and corporate income tax filings are slight, uh, slightly exceeded forecast. And sales tax collections were well above forecast from a broad collection of reporting sectors. Uh, also, individual and corporate refunds were less than expected, which add to net available results. Within sales tax, we had growth year over year of 4.7%. That's pretty good, uh, considering how well we did last year, and this is compounding on top of that. The growth, as I said, was broad-based in sales tax. However, motor vehicle sales tax was down 8.3% year over year. Uh, We also have a uh, tax reduction that's in effect, and that was for the used vehicle uh, reduced rate on sales tax uh, for vehicles between $4,000 and $10,000. So that's pulling down revenue results by about a little over a million dollars a month from that estimate. In addition to that, we have higher finance costs on big ticket items uh, from interest rates going up. The surprising result was how strong all the other big categories were in sales tax, including the major category of retail trade, which was up 4.9%. Yeah, we've heard uh, so much talk about, uh, are we entering a recession and with inflation, are consumers worried about uh, spending? But this sales tax, uh, uh, the numbers here seem to suggest we're not seeing any major uh, retrenching or Arkansans being afraid to make purchases. Right. We're not seeing it in any of our revenues, really, at this point, either from uh, payroll withholding, which reflects the labor market, or sales tax, which is consumption. You know, it may show up later, but at this point, uh, we're not seeing any evidence of it. We we do have declines year over year in the official forecast on an annual basis, and that's really just stepping down off of unsustainable increases last year and the year before. Uh, So that's built in the forecast already. And a lot of states are dealing with that problem of how do you step it down in combination with new concerns about a slowdown by consumers. I think we have a conservative forecast and the 
the monthly layout reflects that annual uh, official forecast. So from one month into the fiscal year, we're tracking above that official forecast for the year end result. And at this point, we're, uh, you know, 26.6 million above forecast. So it's tracking above the expectation that we will end this fiscal year with a $914 million surplus. And uh, this fiscal year was always really looked at as being a transition year of still high growth in some respects coming from the labor market gains that are continuing uh, and not all the way back to normal growth in FY24. You mentioned uh, the there are a lot of factors here that might make uh, July unique. Uh, do you think this is sustainable that we'll continue to see this kind of revenue for the rest of the year or coming months? Well, we do have a very strong labor market in Arkansas, and a lot of other states are seeing the same thing. You know, some large states are still in recovery, coming back to their pre-pandemic level. Arkansas is not one of those. We surpassed that level some time ago, uh, and we're not seeing any evidence of a slowdown in terms of weekly uh, unemployment claims, uh, new claims or existing claims. Uh, And so that's boosting uh, incomes and payroll withholding tax and probably boosting uh, or propping up uh, consumer spending. So rising interest rates are going to take some time to show up in any of these very strong indicators that are high by historic standards. All right, John. Well, thanks as always for your time. Okay, good luck to you. That's John Shonut with the Office of Economic Analysis and Tax Research at the Arkansas Department of Finance and Administration. In Little Rock, I'm Michael Heplin. The Arkansas Fiddle and Banjo Championships and Concerts are Saturday at the Ozark Folk Center State Park in Mountain View. Banjo players in the region compete in the morning for the State Banjo Championship, Fiddle players in the afternoon. Audience admission free for the contest from 1030 until 4. Then Saturday night, Doubleheader Concert will feature performances by the Ozark Highballers and Fiddlin' Banjo Billy Matthews and the old-time players from 7 to 9. Those evening shows are ticketed. Details at ozarkfolkcenter.ticketleap.com. This is today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. Arkansas ended its fiscal year June 30th with $1.6 billion in surplus. In the weeks following, pay raises for Arkansas teachers has been a popular topic. On the program today, we will hear from State Representative Megan Godfrey, a Democrat from Springdale and a former public school teacher. She will discuss details of a proposal from Democratic lawmakers to raise teacher pay. And they want the governor to include the plan for consideration during next week's special session to cut taxes. Also ahead today, Arkansas is not likely to end its next fiscal year with a billion-dollar surplus, but the first monthly tax revenue report of the new year has some good numbers. And we remember former Arkansas Highway Commissioner Bobby Hopper of Springdale. That's all ahead on this edition of the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas, 
The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Live fearless. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Democrats in the Arkansas legislature released a plan one week ago to raise teacher salaries by $4,000 and to raise the minimum teacher salary in the state from $36,000 to $42,000. That plan would tap up to $600 million from the state's $1.6 billion surplus, which leaders contend a fund could be created to sustain the pay raises indefinitely. It is called the RAISE Act and Democrats are asking Governor Asa Hutchinson to include that proposal in his call for a special session next week to cut taxes. He has indicated, at least now, he has no plans to do so. Megan Godfrey is a Democratic state representative from Springdale, a former public school teacher and a member of the House Education Committee. She discussed details of the RAISE Act with Roby Brock. Before we get into the details of this plan that Democrats rolled out this week, this RAISE Act uh, that you did, it's going to require a 70% threshold in uh, both chambers. And the governor has said he's not ready to put it on the call for a special session because he doesn't think the vote's there for it. So tell me mathematically, before we get into the details, how do you get to 75%? Well, that's certainly our work. We have all of the Democrats on board and we're very excited about it. And we know that many of our Republican colleagues have indicated that they will support teacher raises in this special session if it's available to vote upon, if it's part of this uh, special session, if it's included in the call. Um, But we really have just continued to say This is a popular plan. We're hearing from Arkansans all over the state who say we need to increase teacher pay. And so we haven't given up. We said, let's find a plan. Let's listen to some of the concerns that our Republican colleagues have had to say, hey, this is not the way we should do it or this is not when we should do it. We've tried to speak to some of those concerns and alleviate those and continue uh, to find find support so that hopefully we can get to those votes um, in this special session. So if you can prove that those votes are there, do you think the governor will commit to putting it on the special session call? He indicated as much. He said, you know, I I am unlikely to put it on the call unless legislative support is there. And so that's what we're hoping for. We have the plan. We have the money. Now we just need to get the votes. All right. Talk to me about what the plan does. It gives $4,000 pay raises to, I'm presuming every teacher, it raises the minimum teacher salary from $36,000 to $42,000. Walk me through the mechanics of the plan. Yes, that's exactly right. You've got the details right. It's a $4,000 raise for all educators, uh, all licensed teachers in Arkansas, as well as a raise to the minimum salary up to $42,000. And the way we'll do that is use the $1.6 billion surplus. Um, we'll use a portion of that and still have a billion dollars left over to solve additional problems. Um, but for this particular plan, we'll use $600 million 
to jumpstart these pay increases um, for $4,000 for all educators in Arkansas and sustain those increases until the funding that comes from our kind of gradual incremental increases that we do every biennium through the educational adequacy study, eventually that funding will be sufficient to sustain the raises without this, uh, this fund that we're creating. But in the meantime, the Teacher Pay Sustainability Fund will also use surplus funds to fill in the gap between the time we launch these raises for this school year and the time those gradual increases um, can sustain the program without the fund. The good news is that even with these surplus funds and even with um, just kind of conservative estimates based on recent history and what we have traditionally done to increase education funding over time, um, we'll continue to have money left over and we'll only need to use the sustainability fund until fiscal year 2027. Yeah, so I guess just a little bit more on the math on that. So you're basically in five years or less, you're saying it will be able to be funded by the, the matrix that funds teacher salaries already through this adequacy right. study that you guys do every other year. Um, that That's my interpretation of that, correct? Yes, you've got it. And again, that's just based on estimates that we'll only increase the matrix funding or the foundation funding $225 per pupil, which is what we did last biennium on average. I'm hoping that it'll be more. I'm hoping that this conversation about the need to raise teacher pay and the need to do that um, within the adequacy study and within the process of those biennial education increases, it seems to me that we need to make even more of an investment that we than we have in the recent future. Um, but even if all we do is increase the same amount as we did this last biennium, we'll still only need the sustainability fund for the for the short term um, until fiscal 27. All right, you got a little over a week to get those votes whipped and get them in there. Promise me this, you will let me know first when you get to 75% in both chambers that you're gonna take it back. Probably, but I've had a lot of teachers texting me um, and saying, let me know when you've got the vote. So they may be first and you'll be my second call after I tell my teacher friends we're going to get it done. That is State Representative Megan Godfrey, Democrat from Springdale. Now the governor's official position at the moment is that there is insufficient support among lawmakers for a teacher pay increase in a special session. For that reason, he says there is no plan to add it to the call next week. As always, we will report any further developments. In other news this week, Arkansas began its fiscal year in July with sales tax revenue of $615.9 million. That is up 2.6% compared with July 2021 and 3% above the forecast. After ending the previous fiscal year in June with $1.6 billion in surplus, the surplus after July stands at $26.6 million. July was also a good month for building activity in the Fort Smith Metro, pushing year-to-date permit values up 57% compared with the same period in 2021. Fort Smith, Greenwood, and Van Buren had $88.15 million in total permit values last month, that is well ahead of $25 million in July 2021. And former State Highway Commissioner Bobby Hopper has died. Hopper was a retired auto dealer in Springdale who was perhaps best known as Arkansas's longest serving member of the powerful Arkansas Highway Commission. Governor Bill Clinton appointed Hopper in 1983 and he served until 1999. 
A memorial service was held Wednesday in Mountain Home near Hopper's childhood home in Cotter. Bobby Hopper was 89 years old. For more news, visit us on the web at nwabusinessjournal.com, where you can follow our reporting each and every day. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. The next Broadway season at Walton Art Center starts Tuesday with My Fair Lady. The musical debuted in 1958, and its source material, George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, was first produced in 1913. It's beloved, and it's also a source of reexamination. The relationship between Professor Henry Higgins, a linguist, and Eliza Doolittle, a woman he uses to attempt to win a bet, is seen by many in a different way more than a century after the work was written. Yesterday, we talked with the actor portraying Higgins in the national tour, Laird McIntosh, about the character, the play, and how Laird has long been associated with the musical. I became aware of it because, like a lot of people, my parents had the um, original album in their uh, collection of records at home. And my dad was a a great uh, fan of the musical and... um, likewise the movie and used to quote Higgins around the house. And actually my dad was um, sort of a, a little bit of a Higgins ish character himself, though not, not to the um, extremes of behavior of Henry Higgins, but in the sense that he was sort of um, uh, a bookworm and um, had, had a slightly kind of British sort of feel to him and um but probably one of the first records that i became aware of my parents playing and the music being around the house was was my fair lady um and then i actually very very early in my career um had uh a big connection with it because i was in a production of my fair lady at the stratford festival up in canada um and uh although i played freddie einsford hill at that point. Um, and so my career has actually been kind of, um, bookended, although I hope this isn't the end of my career, so I shouldn't say bookending it, but, um, you know, I, I, in younger days I had, um, it had a big impact on, on my life. Um, and it's having a big impact again with Higgins. So Freddie and professor Higgins are, two different characters coming from life from two different ends, you know, of experience. Does that require sort Mm -hmm. of a different approach? Oh, definitely. I mean, I can't really, you know, um, it was 20 years ago that I played um, Freddie. And so um, it was much more akin to who I was, I guess, at the time. And um, it seemed to, um, you know... uh, come naturally out of me in the same way that playing a middle-aged guy (laughs) comes naturally out of me now. Um, but yes, they, in terms of acting, they are, they're, um, you know, they're polar opposite characters and, um, uh, although they do represent in the story, um, two of the options, if you can call them that, that, that Eliza has two of the men who come into her life as, as 
you know, um, potential um, partners or romantic partners. Um, although George Bernard Shaw was adamant that um, Henry Higgins not be a romantic partner for Eliza Doolittle. But, um, but yeah, both great characters to play. I mean, in fact, Freddie Arnsford Hill was, was given the song of uh, On the Street Where You Live because very unchar- uncharacteristically for uh, a musical, there was no love duet written between Eliza Doolittle and, and Henry Higgins which you, I don't know if there's any other musical uh, or, or, you know, musical of the golden era that exists um, that doesn't have the two uh, main characters singing a love duet together. Um, but it, it was, it, it was and is a very unusual um, relationship that's portrayed on stage between them. And so they give, gave this beautiful soaring, uh, gorgeous love song to Freddie Arnsford Hill. And he sings it. So, you, you know, you get it in the show. Right. You know, um, George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, I think, was early 20th century. Then the My Fair Lady, I think, is deba- debuts on the West End in London in the late 50s. We become familiar with Rex Harrison, most of us, through film, the 1964 version. All along this timeline, I think we, watching Henry Higgins, I know in my lifetime I have, we kind of change how we approach and think about Henry Higgins, right? Mm. Yeah, certainly throughout the years. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we're, our production looks at Higgins and the relationship of Higgins and Eliza, I think very much influenced um, by our times, certainly influenced by, by the advent of the Me Too movement and certainly influenced by the way we think about relationships between men and women and indeed between, between um, all people um, in this day and age. And so, um, although, you know, our director has very, you know, very um, wisely um, doesn't shy away from anything in this production. And um, you have an opportunity as actors to, uh, present a real conflict and drama between the characters in this show. I mean, it's just right there on the page. And um, it might, I think, actually have been um, downplayed in some ways in, in the productions that we're most familiar with, you know, certainly in the Rex Harrison, Audrey Hepburn relationship in the, in the famous movie. Um, and I would just give you an example, like, Rex Harrison says a line like um, calls her a presumptuous insect at one point during the show. Um, and um, I think he, Rex Harrison sort of threw the line away in, in a, uh, in that very, you know, quintessentially English way of being able to say something that was quite cutting, but um, sort of cast it off in a lighthearted way. Um, and it softens it a little bit, I think. But, you know, our director, Bart Shear, wanted me to really take any line or any action like that and be absolutely as um, uh, tough and hard and, and uh, even mean as, as I could be. Um, and so that amps up the conflict between the two of us because naturally the audience watching that 
is not going to like that when I when I do that to her. So it makes for a very um, I think the the characters are kind of polarizing right now. Well, certainly Henry Higgins is a is a character that polarizes people. Um, right. Uh, although I don't I don't really know how polarized. I mean, I think um, a lot of people simply find him to be a little bit of a um, a hard character now. But I don't really think, you know, in drama, you can't um, take these characters and say, well, now we're going to um, not hear from this character. Or, you know, I mean, certainly there's no question that we're going to, you know, stop doing My Fair Lady or something like that because it's, it's a brilliant show. And um, it is one of the things that we love to watch when we're at the theater is you want I mean, drama is conflict, right? So. Right. You, you, you want to see these characters grappling. And, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very, very, very interesting relationship between these two. Because I said, as I said, George Bernard Shaw never wanted them to be a romantic couple. As a matter of fact, when with the success of Pygmalion, um, people were so interested in these two um being romantically linked and uh george bernard shaw heard so much about it got so many letters from people that he wrote in one of the subsequent editions of pygmalion he wrote a um preface or i guess an afterword um in which he detailed um the the um you know the the sequel for um Higgins and Eliza and Freddie Einsford Hill. And, you know, he, he tells what happens to the characters after the story. And indeed he doesn't put Higgins and Eliza together. Um, and, uh, but I think it's just, uh, maybe it's human nature in some way that we see these characters having this, this struggle to find the way that they can, come together on terms that suit them both and they constantly just say the wrong thing to each other and just miss each other somehow and you know there's a great desire you can feel the audience wanting it to work out right (laughs) you know what i mean so it's um it is not this show is not and has never been sort of neatly wrapped up in a bow at the end there's there's a lot of ambiguity throughout the show and in these characters, and it leads to a very interesting... Like, this is a show that I think people really talk about after seeing it. It leads to a lot of interest and discussion, and um, which I think is a wonderful thing. Well, and it, as you mentioned, it's it's this work of art that talks about not just gender, but class and, and, and quality of life expectation... And it's a, it's a remarkable work that can stand the test of time with new examination over the decades. Well, you, you just said it perfectly, Kyle. I mean, that's, that is, I couldn't have said it better. And that, that's exactly why people keep coming back to it, both on stage and in the audience, you know, because it, it is one of those, as you say, one of those works of art that kind of demonstrates why, why theater um, is engaging for people and why it's important. And um, we sometimes think of um, musical theater as just a sort of light evenings diversion or entertainment. Um, and this is an example of why it 
um, can be both light and a diversion and entertaining, but also something that you really, I mean, my brother came to see the show when we were in Los Angeles and, and we went out after and, uh, you know, um, there was a group of us at the table and talking and talking and talking about the show and, and my brother questioning me about it. And he turned to me and said, Oh, we've been talking about the show for an hour now. You know, it's really, it's a show that lends itself to a lot of, um, um, you know, discussion and debate. So I think that's really, that's, that's a great feeling for us as actors. If we feel like we can leave people with that. Laird McIntosh is Henry Higgins in the national touring production of My Fair Lady, opening Tuesday night at Walton Arts Center. More information about the production at waltonartcenter.org. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The 2022 Roots Festival culinary lineup features 26 chefs from across the nation and northwest Arkansas, including 2022 James Beard winners Edgar Rico and Eric Williams, as well as numerous others at the Culinary Grand Tasting, Taste and Talk series, local restaurant takeovers, and the Roots pop-up at the 641 Deli. For the full culinary lineup of this year's festival, and for tickets, FayettevilleRoots.org. This is Ozarks Lars. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday. With us as well in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, Sherry Ottaviano, our membership director. Welcome, Sherry. And our director of community engagement, Jasper Logan. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks for coming in. We're going to make some other listeners who support us financially happy. That's right. Uh, Membership support's the most important source of funding here at KUAF. And this week, we are going to make it a point to let our members know just how much we appreciate them. Um, You support the headlines, the stories, and everything you hear and everything everybody else hears. Jasper, I mean, community, right? Exactly. I mean, without the support of our memberships, our donors, we wouldn't be able to have uh, a lot of the events that we have. We wouldn't be able to engage the community and create so many touch points um, and connecting with um, the community. So super grateful for that. Super grateful for the ability to just um, expand um, our range and connecting with the community. All thanks to what the donors have done. And we're always open to new ideas. That's right. That's right. We may not have all the people we need to do all these ideas yeah, we want to do, but <laughs> we're open to them. Yeah, but our community has been super supportive, and um, and, and that's evident through um, the donations, through our, our membership team. And so we're super grateful for that. All right. We're going to yeah. send a T-shirt? Yes. That's right. We're t-shirt. giving away a T-shirt to Dr. Paul King in Greenwood, Arkansas. All right. All the way over in Greenwood. All the Thank way over so in Greenwood. Thank you so much for supporting us. Hey, I just want to point out that Monday – it was, I think, Van Buren. Mm-hmm. Tuesday, we had Fort Smith. Uh-huh. Yesterday, we had Lavaca. Today, we had Greenwood. River Valley, represented. That's right. All right. Jasper, thank you. Sherry, thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you, Kyle.
Leslie Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with Miguel del Aguila's Silence, performed by Tyler Guzman, clarinet, and Gail Novak, piano. Written in 2013 by Uruguayan-American composer Miguel del Aguila, Silence is a slow, nostalgic, and introspective work. Its simple structure is dominated by a recurring lyrical theme which contains elements from 1940s Latin jazz and tango. This highly melodic and expressive work was inspired by the sudden passing of the composer's brother Nelson del Aguila, and it expresses the sadness of this loss.
That was Miguel Del Aguila's piece for clarinet and piano, Silence, performed by Tyler Guzman and Gail Novak. Composer Elisa Morris serves as assistant professor of oboe at Kansas State University. Known also as a composer, her music is performed extensively around the world and has been described by the American Record Guide as elegant and imaginative. Alisa Morris has been a featured performer and composer on NPR program Performance Today and live on Kansas Public Radio's program Classical Music in the Morning. In her piece, Four Personalities, Morris explores different textures through the movement, which are based on the Hartman Color Code Personality Test. Hartman says, yellows love to have fun. The joy of living in the moment and doing something just for the sake of doing it is the driving force for these people. Yellows offer the gifts of enthusiasm and optimism. They are generally charismatic, spontaneous, and sociable. Let us listen to oboist Catherine Needleman and pianist Hanshian Lee performing Yellow, the first movement of Elisa Morris' piece Four Personalities, written in 2007 and recorded in 2019 during a live recital at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That was oboist Catherine Needleman and pianist Han Chen Lee performing Yellow, the first movement of Alisa Morris' piece for personalities. Let there be spaces in your togetherness and let the winds of the heavens dance between you, said Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran in his famous book The Prophet. I hope you enjoy today's Dancing Winds, and I hope you fill your empty spaces with music as well. 
This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. Sound Perimeter is a segment dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it'll expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. See you soon. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Shepherd Mountain. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Michael Hiblin, Paul Gatling, Roby Brock, and Leo Uribe. Our gratitude to Jasper Logan and Sherry Ottaviano for participating on the show today. Matthew Moore produced our show inside Studio 120. Timothy Dennis produced today's Sound Perimeter. And the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is produced by Stephanie Brock. Our theme Written and performed by Daryl Sean. It's called The First Hurrah. We're back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 for a Friday edition of Ozarks at Large. From the Carter Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellum. Stay dry. Talk to you again very soon.